You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Chris Foreman's going to lead us this morning. Chris, take it away. Well, good morning. Welcome to Bethel. My name is, as Eric said, Chris Foreman. And I'm a deacon here downtown. Um, You might have seen me up here with a guitar in my hand from time to time, which is much more comfortable for me, if I'm being honest. But I am excited to have this podium and this one in particular because you see this little piece of red tape on it? I found out the hard way that that means this is Eric's special preaching podium. So I'm very excited to be able to lay hands on this thing. Uh, A little bit about myself, if you don't know me, um, married to the wonderful Darla for seven years. I've got two little girls, four and a half and two and a half, with one little boy on the way in May. Um, You saw this. This is is because I have two girls. This isn't my particular flavor, Um, but that's that's a pretty good designation of what it's like at my household anyways. Um, To turn the clock back even more on introducing myself, I am uh, the youngest of three, grew up in and around church, and so all these Bible stories are very familiar to me and have been for the majority of my life. And as the youngest of three, the guy I really looked up to in the Bible was David, because he was the youngest. He was the little shepherd boy kind of out doing his own thing. And, uh, but he was also killing lions and bears and slaying giants and leading armies. And he was a man after God's own heart. I thought, I want, I want to be David. That seems like a pretty noble goal. I mean, here we have a man after God's own heart. Let's follow his lead. And so as I tried to do that and continue to grow up, at least in stature, um, I realized that I, I couldn't be like David. Because where David was killing bears and lions, I was running away. Where he was slaying giants, I was sitting in a tent asking somebody else to, to do it for me. And whenever he was confronted, he would retreat and pray, and ask God for guidance, and I would just jump headlong into it. And so I I begin to learn that I I really wasn't like David. So who who could I be like? And so I want to go ahead and give us an on-ramp. We've been in uh, 1 Samuel talking about David, and uh, just kind of what's going on to set the scene. Saul is the king. He's the first king of Israel. They've been through the judges cycle where they sin and the judge delivers and they do what's right in their own eyes. A judge delivers. And then they say to God, you know what? We want a king. God said, okay, you have one. I'm your king. They said, no, we want somebody that we can see and touch and that will lead battles for us. We want something a little more tangible. So he said, all right. Here's your guy, the tall, broad-shouldered, handsome, strong warrior Saul, who looked like a king. He, at least for a time, acted like a king. 
David has already been anointed by Samuel, meaning he's going to be the next king. But we're sort of in this weird in-between phase where Saul is the king, but David is having these successes. Again, we're right on the heels of his victory against Goliath. And so let's go ahead and dig into the text, knowing those things. Uh, 1 Samuel 18, we're going to read verses 1 through 5. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So here we have Jonathan kind of tethering himself to David. He humbly, very humbly, yields what, by all accounts of what we know about Jonathan, a position that he was well qualified for. He was a great warrior. He had had success alongside David. He was well liked by the people. He was a smart dude. He was qualified for the position. And obviously he was the son of Saul. So it seemed to follow that he would be the next king. And there's no reason he shouldn't have been, except he realized that David was God's anointed. So he humbly yielded his position that he was entitled to and accepted God's plan for his life and for David's life, rather than let the jealousy rot him away. So I grew up playing sports, most specifically baseball. And as you kind of you know, work your way up from the little league to playing high school to playing, you know, in these summer leagues, the, the talent level goes up and up. And I started to realize there's a lot of people that are better than, than I am. I thought I was pretty good at this whole deal. And I'm surrounded by people that are better than me, that can throw the ball harder, that can hit the ball further, that can run faster. And so you kind of start thinking, well, why wasn't I built like a gazelle? You know, why didn't, why didn't God make me 6'5", 220, you know, chiseled out of solid muscle? And uh, that's a bad spot because God makes us in our own unique ways for very specific reasons. And Jonathan accepted that, didn't he? He, he said, God, I think it'd be fun to be king, but I know that you've qualified and called David for this position, so I'm going to get on board. And I'm going to love him as I love my own soul. And so I believe that Jonathan experienced freedom in that moment and that he accepted what God wanted him to do. He didn't try to be something that he wasn't supposed to be. We all have different parts in the body, right? Some people are hands, some people are feet. Jonathan accepted his role. He wasn't trying to be a hand when he was supposed to be a foot. He wasn't trying to put a square peg through a round hole. What he did was he humbled himself for the glory of God and for the welfare of his people. And he made this unilateral covenant with David. He said, I'm with you no matter what. Not because I've got something to offer you. Not because you're going to keep me safe, but because this is 
what God would have for you and what God would have for me. That unilateral covenant sounds kind of like what Christ has done for us. He sent his son to die and be a sacrifice for our sins. And in return, we give him nothing. Our brokenness, our sin has been nailed to the cross and he just requires nothing of us. So this is a little bit of foreshadowing to that. Let's, uh, let's read on verses six through nine. <clears throat> As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very proud of David. No. And Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. He said, emphasis mine here. They have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. So this is kind of interesting because what we really see here is Saul taking this little song out of context. You know, I got to thinking, this culture wasn't exactly known for their, their freedom of speech, especially as a woman. And so the way that Saul responds to David, you would think he would just obliterate these women, right? But what we see, the song that they're singing is actually kind of a a colloquialism of the time, sort of in their own vernacular. So we, we take a look at Psalm 91, 7, which says, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. So this is something that they would have been referencing and maybe different songs that they would sing. So would Saul be angry at his right hand for having ten thousand and his left hand for only having a thousand. No, that's ridiculous. But what we see is he's totally taking this out of context because he's starting to let the jealousy and envy eat him up. And really, Saul should feel honored to be the king during a time where the Israels are having these conquests and these successes, and they're growing as a nation. They just had a huge victory. And Saul didn't have anything to do with it. Saul was sitting in his tent like, like my de default reaction is, for 40 days while Goliath hurls these accusations against the army of Israel and against God. And he says, who will fight Goliath? It's not going to be me, but maybe somebody will do it. So really, he should be grateful to David and he should be happy to be king during such a great time. His response here you know, obviously we can, we can pretty clearly say it's not a good response. We can very easily say, don't be like Saul. When in reality, we respond like Saul a lot of the time, don't we? His response is opposite of John the Baptist, who was clearing the way for, for Jesus. And John the Baptist said, I must decrease in order that he may increase. That's not what Saul's doing here. Saul's still holding on. Saul still wants to increase by whatever means necessary, even if it's sending a shepherd boy out to fight his battles for him. <clears throat> so this envy that, that is starting to kind of rot Saul's bones, I, I found a, a definition of envy that I think suits him pretty well. 
and what's going on in his heart. Envy is the act of counting others' blessings more than our own. So he's thinking about all these good things that are happening to David. and Meanwhile, he's out in the corner whining, saying, woe is me. How could he have gone so far off the rails? I mean, he's this successful king. He's got all these good things happening, and he can't be happy because he's counting David's blessing. So I, I think I have a unique insight into this because I do the same thing. <laughs> it's, it's not a commentary that tells me it's, it's my, own, my own heart that counts other people's blessings before my own. It's, it's like the that car commercial that they play over and over where there's two neighbors talking and they say, oh, it's a new year. I, I bought this organization system for my garage and it's going to streamline everything and I got a great deal on it. And the neighbor says, oh, well, I just got this, this brand new truck with the remote start and, uh, and a sunroof and GPS and I got a great deal on it too. And there's this moment where the neighbor who's organizing the garage is like, you one upper, now I got to get a truck. You know, we're sitting there keeping tabs on our neighbors, trying to keep up with them. And really what's going on in our hearts is we want what they have because we feel that we deserve it. What we see from Saul is when your hope is in yourself or in your fellow man, it's very difficult to lead. Even when your hope is in David, it's difficult to lead or follow because we're all part of the human condition. We're fallen man. And so inevitably, we will fail. And so what happens when we fail? Where do we turn? Do we turn to a new leader? That's what we see the Israelites do. From judge to judge, from king to king. Where's their baseline? Moving on to uh, verses 10 through 16. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. And this is kind of a funny thing. Um, so I told you I was the youngest of three. I've got an older brother, and you know, you have those little skirmishes like in the back seat when you're going on vacation or something, and hitting each other and your parents tell you to stop and so help me, I'll pull this car over. Why'd you hit your brother? Well, I was just seeing how close my fist could get to his face and it got all the way there. Yeah, whoops. I, I think this is maybe what Saul's doing. Everyone's thinking, why are you throwing the spear? Oh, I was just trying to pin him to the wall twice. Like, I don't know about that, Saul. <clears throat> But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. A little bit of a troubling beginning to this part where God sends a harmful spirit to Saul. And there's a little bit of debate on what that is. Is this just God giving Saul over to the desires of his heart, which is wrapped up in his throne and his comfort and the power that he wields from the throne? But I actually think 
that God did send him a harmful spirit. God has clearly rejected Saul as the king. We know that much. And Saul has rejected God. And at first thought you think, well, that's not really fair. But then you think, my God, my God, why have you not forsaken me? I've tried every way to screw up. And yet you still renew me and you still bring me back and call me yours. So there's a couple of contrasts in this particular section. There's a contrast between David's harp and Saul's spear, right? David is playing this harp in an effort to soothe Saul and to make beautiful music and to sing praises. And Saul's got this spear. I mean, why do you carry a spear around in your house unless you're a man full of paranoia? There's a contrast between Saul and Jonathan. So Saul saw David as a threat to his throne, right? David is having all these successes. The people are wild about him. And he's starting to see a little bit of decline of Saul, but he's holding on so tightly. But he's right. David is absolutely a threat to his throne, isn't he? Jonathan saw David as the security for God's people. And Jonathan was right too. Saul and Jonathan were both right about what they thought David was. The problem is that Jonathan has his priorities aligned with God. Saul has his priorities aligned with himself. It reminds me of a quote that that Matt brings up quite a bit um, by Thomas Cranmer, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. So Jonathan loved God. He chose to follow David and, and to tether his soul to David. And then we see Jonathan, especially in this next section, he goes to Saul and says, don't kill him, you know. He's an advocate on David's behalf. And so we see his mind justifying what his heart loves. We also see the same thing with Saul, don't we? Saul loves him some Saul. And he wants to hold on to his throne because that's his strength. That's his power. That's where he derives his worth and his meaning. And so he chooses to make David an enemy because David is a threat to that throne. So he's trying to kill David. He justifies his actions because he's trying to take away what's mine. He's holding on so tightly to his throne and to his power that he did not even have the capacity to love David. This next section is kind of bizarre. Um, We won't go through the entire text, but I'll kind of sum it up. Saul wants David as a son-in-law because he's changed his mind and, and changed his heart and really wants David to thrive. No, he actually is trying to use his, his daughters as a snare so that now David has been elevated on the Philistines' radar. Well, look, this guy's the son-in-law of the king. We need to go ahead and take care of him, right? As if David's not high enough on the Philistines' radar. He just slayed their best, their best warrior. It's kind of sick, isn't it? To use your own daughters as a snare for your enemy so that you can hold on to what you love. And so David pushes back. He says, I'm not worthy. Who am I that I should be the king's son-in-law? I come from nothing. 
Saul comes back, well, what about my other daughter? David says, I'm not sure if you're understanding that being the son-in-law of the king is a big deal. Saul says, no, absolutely. David says, I can't give you anything. And Saul says, goes on to have the most bizarre dowry ever seen in the history of man. And uh, luckily, I didn't have to do this whenever I asked for my wife's hand in marriage. And I don't think I'll require this of anybody that asks my daughters to marry them. But he wants him to strike down 100 Philistines because he wants to put him in harm's way. He's hoping, surely this will take care of David. I'll put him in danger. The Philistines will kill him. And I'll be back to being king of my castle. Well, David goes out and, we, and he kills 200. Which, you know, initially I'm thinking, yeah, way to go, David. But it seems like maybe a little bit of an overcompensation, right? David displays all this humility, but maybe he, go, maybe he takes it too far because he felt so unworthy, he's got to somehow prove himself to Saul. Like, you, you beat Goliath. You're confident in the God who chose you and anointed you. You don't need to, you don't need to strike down an extra hundred men. And this, consequently, is one of the reasons that David doesn't get to get ushered into the temple because God said he was a man of bloodshed. So we start to see the first little crack in the armor here for David because, again, he's a human. He's got the human condition. So we move on to uh, chapter 19, first section here, 1 through 7. Let's go ahead and read that. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David. Because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. So here we see Saul, at least initially, he's done with these little behind-the-scenes sneaky plots. And now he's just gone full bore. He's, he's making it public, and he's ready to kill David. He doesn't care what anybody thinks about it. It kind of reminds me of when the Israelites are in Egypt and Pharaoh continues to harden his heart and harden his heart, he will not let him go. It's kind of what we're seeing. We're seeing that same spirit in Saul here. But Jonathan, because again, he's, he's an advocate for David, pleads on his behalf. He says that David was innocent, right? It served Saul faithfully. And he appeals for justice. That... I want to reference Psalm 58, uh, verses 1 and 2 here. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts. You devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. 
Now, he's, when he says gods here, he's not, you know, referencing Baal and Ra and all these other. He's talking about the, the people that are supposed to be advocates for the masses. He's talking about the judges, the kings, those that are out for supposedly out for the best interest of others. And yet here they are taking advantage of their position. And instead of being an advocate for those that maybe don't have a voice, he's trampling on them. The interesting thing here is that down the line, David does the exact same thing. He abuses his power. Maybe something that he learned from his previous king and sends a man to his death. Sin is kind of a slippery slope. We see it in Saul, and it gets passed on to David and passed on to David's son. We see kind of the same repeating sins. Now, Jonathan here, while he's pleading on David's behalf, he's kind of an advocate for him, right? He's making intercession for David, saying he's blameless and innocent before Saul and before all the people. This reminds me of uh, Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So here we see another foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do for us. He constantly makes intercession for us and declares us holy and blameless, not because we have been holy and blameless, but because our sin has been atoned by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So then in verses 8 through 10, the next section, the harmful spirit returns to Saul again, and he throws a spirit at David again. David dodges, but for those of you scoring at home, that's his fourth attempt on David's life. So now David, he's got to go. He goes home that evening, and he's, he's going to head out the next day. And Saul catches wind of this and sends messengers to bring David in because he's, he's ready to kill him. He's ready to be done with this once and for all. Now David's wife, Michael, the second daughter of Saul, who he did end up marrying, caught wind of this as well, and she warned David and said, you need to get out tonight. I'll help you crawl out the window, and you got to go. Saul's going to kill you. So what she does, well, I'll get to that in a second. Out of this situation, we actually get Psalm 59. David wrote this psalm while he was in this situation. It's a prayer for escape, a prayer for deliverance. He talks about the messengers of Saul and the spies of Saul being like dogs on the prowl. He prays for the escape and deliverance on the grounds of the wickedness of his enemies, the danger of imminent death, right? They're there to kill him. His own innocence, he didn't do anything to deserve this. And the atheism of his enemies. It's kind of this, forgive them for they know not what they do. If they knew that I was your anointed and that was your plan, 
They wouldn't be after me. They wouldn't want to kill me, but they don't know. They don't know your purpose. They don't know you. Forgive them, but deliver me. This kind of sounds like another who would come later who was innocent and blameless. And yet, he didn't pray for escape. He prayed for our escape and deliverance. So anyways, as we're going through this, Michael dresses up a fake David in the bed. Here we see the original Ferris Bueller. And the messengers come up. She says, no, David's in bed. He's sick. He's not feeling well. I'll let you know when he's better. And Saul, Saul's not having it. So he goes up there himself, discovers it's a ruse, and is furious with his daughter. Well, that's probably a learned behavior, right? Kind of this tricky, lying, making excuse behavior. She pro- that was probably modeled for her by her dad, wasn't it? So now David's on the run, and he decides, I think I'm going to meet up with Samuel. Samuel, the one who anointed both Saul and David, the prophet, because he felt like he would be a safe haven. So he goes to meet up with Samuel, and Saul has eyes and ears everywhere, finds out that he's there. So he goes and sends messengers to kill David. Well, the messengers get there, and the text says that they start prophesying. And this can mean one of two things, prophesying either being to foretell events or to sing songs and praises. So the application here is the singing songs and praises. The Spirit of God overcomes them, and they... They start what's tantamount to being a revival. Saul sends another set of messengers. Same thing. Spirit of God overtakes them. They begin prophesying. So he sends a third set of messengers. Same thing happens. So Saul says, all right, if you want to do something right, you got to do it yourself, which is kind of Saul's MO, isn't it? He comes, and the Spirit of God overtakes him, and he starts prophesying, giving David enough time to get out of Dodge. So now David's going to begin this tenuous 10-year cat-and-mouse journey with Saul. I just want to make a couple of of points based on this passage. One is that God uses a variety of relationships to, uh, to protect us and to deliver us. One is a friend. Jonathan was... Obviously, David's friend, he loved him. He said, wherever you go, I'll go. I am for you. And he makes intercession on his behalf. We have a spouse. Michael was able to give David a heads up, help him get out of Dodge. Granted, it was by a little bit of trickery and deceit, but God can still use, and God does use, broken humans to ultimately accomplish his purpose. Now, I want to pause here because whenever Eric asked me to preach a couple of weeks ago, I said, I didn't say no, it was more like absolutely not. <laughs> um, and he said, well, you don't have to give me an answer yet. Just, you know, pray about it. Talk to your wife about it. I said, oh, perfect. Because Darla usually will curtail my activities, which is a good thing, trust me. Otherwise, I'd be running around like a chicken with my head cut off. 
So that is a blessing to me. So I thought, this will be great. I'll tell her about this, and she'll say, no, that's preposterous. Don't do that. And that's my out, right? So she got home. Girls were asleep. And I said, listen to what Eric said. How ridiculous is this? He wants me to preach. She goes, oh, you should totally do that. I'm like, no! <laughs> now I don't have an out. Now I got to do it. But I, I will tell you that the last two weeks have been very refining for me. Not only just in going through the text, but in, in just listening to what the Spirit would have to say through it. And so in that, in that way, she was very much a blessing to me and encouraging me to do something that is difficult and uncomfortable and, uh, and something that, that helps you grow. So the third relationship that God uses is a spiritual leader, like Samuel was. <clears throat> he was able to give David safe haven, maybe give him some counsel and some advice, like run. <laughs> and the, the fourth type of uh, relationship that we see here is the Holy Spirit. God sends his spirit to the three sets of messengers and even Saul and, a, and provides an escape for David. Now, these are all great relationships, especially for David at the time, but how much better are they now? Now that we are in fellowship, a Wednesday morning men's group where we get together and we're all filled with the same indwelling spirit. They didn't have that luxury at the time, and we do. My second point and hopefully I've made this apparent, we are not David in this story. Maybe on our best days, we're Michael, and usually we're Saul. My third point is that Saul was unable to give up control. He was holding on so tightly to his comfort, his what he thought was his purpose, his strength. And what I see a lot of the times, whenever people continue to hold on tightly to their control, and what I know true of myself as well, that in relationships with one another, with our spouses, or even with our, in our relationship with Jesus, we think, is the one that we give control to trustworthy? If I give this person control of my life, will they have my best interest at heart? Or will they walk all over me? Will they just be like a vampire sucking out whatever they can? Or will they love me despite who I am? In this way, Jesus is either a friend or he's a threat. He's a friend because he does have your best interest at heart. While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. 
He loves us. He sent his son to a broken world that, that, by the way, we had broken to redeem our sin and to bring us back to himself. So I would submit that, yes, he is trustworthy. He does have your best interest at heart. My last point is this. I've been trying to get away from drawing morals from Saul's actions or don't be like Saul or try to be like David. That's an exercise in missing the point. Really what we're trying to do is show how Jonathan was Christ-like in his actions and how Jesus is the better Jonathan and how he makes intercession on our behalf. How Jesus is the better David. How he does actually deliver us when David couldn't do so. But here's a big difference. Saul attempted to kill David and failed. David prayed for deliverance and he was delivered. He dodged the spears. He got away. Jesus willingly steps in front of the spear. He came and died for our sins. Not because he wanted to. He prayed and prayed, said, if this cup can pass, if it can be taken from me, please let it be so. And God said, it's the only way. This is what we're doing. Jesus was put there by the will, strength, and the wisdom of man. And yet he still willingly went to his death in order that we might be redeemed. So I want to ask you this morning, do you believe? If you do, it's great. If you don't, it doesn't change the reality of what happened. It was, it was explained to me like this earlier this week by a man named Chad Bird, who led a group of men earlier. <clears throat> he said, if you walk outside and the sun is shining and your eyes are closed... The sun is still shining, whether your eyes are closed or not. So you go outside, eyes are closed, and you open them. You see the sun. You believe. Now do you then go on to say to your friends, look at, look at this marvelous thing I've done. I've opened my eyes, and now the sun is shining. Look what I've done to make the sun shine. Absolutely not. The sun is shining whether your eyes are open or closed. We pray that the Holy Spirit would do a work in our lives in which he opens our eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, uh, for the story that you've given us. Uh, the story of bringing us back to you. One broken person at a time, God. You use imperfect people to accomplish your perfect will. We thank you for that, God. We thank you that we don't have to be perfect because we can't. We try and we fail. But you call us blameless anyways, God, because of the finished work of your son on the cross. We praise you for that. We love you. Amen. All right. Well, would everybody rise to their feet? Good job, Chris. I'm grateful for that, man. Good stuff. Rise to your feet.
as we uh, benedict and we go on our way today. Benediction is from Romans 15, 5 through 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go in peace. You're dismissed. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.